Well, we're not done with 1 Kings. There's one more chapter, a very sad chapter, that we still have to talk about. But we're going to take a break for the next couple of weeks, this week and next, to consider the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus in light of the week that the church celebrates this week. And not just to remember it, but to consider the implication of those things for, for Christians. And so we're going to do that by looking at a couple of passages from 1 Peter chapter 1. In fact, that's our text this morning. If you have a Bible and you want to turn there, 1 Peter chapter 1. And if you're using the blue Bibles that are in the chair racks, then 1 Peter is on page 1,293. Now, just a quick context for what we're going to read in just a second. Um, who's Peter? Who's this guy? We're kind of jumping right in the, in the middle of this. Well, Peter was one of the first and one of the most prominent followers of, of Jesus. He was a fisherman whose life was transformed by his encounter with Jesus and became, after some significant failures, but became a passionate leader in the early church. And he's writing this letter to churches who were encountering some fairly significant suffering. And so this letter is intended to be an encouragement to them and by way of them an encouragement to us. And that makes it all the more interesting then to see that the very beginning of his letter, that at the very beginning of his letter, Peter grounds everything he's about to, cha- about to tell this church that is struggling su- with suffering, everything he's about to tell them, he grounds them in this living hope, he says, that is found through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, which makes it an appropriate thing for us to look at this week and next. So let me invite you to stand while I read this, and when I'm done, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord and invite you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. <clears throat> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. <clears throat> now, I don't, um, I don't follow professional tennis very closely, um, but a couple of a couple of stories over the last couple of weeks caught my, caught my eye. The, the world, first, the, the world of, of women's tennis was shocked a few weeks ago. I don't know if you saw this. Uh, when the 25-year-old Ashley Barty, 25-year-old Ashley Barty announced that she was retiring. She's 25 years old. She's retiring. And she's going out on top, right? Because before her announcement, she was ranked number one in the world by the Women's Tennis Association. And she's stepping back for some admirable Reasons, she says she wants to be known as Ash Barty the person, not as Ash Barty the, the athlete. Now, her situation, though, may be a little bit hard to relate to at first, to, to kind of connect with, because after all, she's going out on top. She's number one. 
It's not a feeling that anyone except that one person who is number one gets to experience. All of, uh, all of the rest of us get to experience what it feels like to not be number one, right? But she's going out on, she's going on, out on top. Most of us, though, feel like another, another story that I saw just about a week ago, and that's the situation of Lesia Serenko. Now, Lesia Serenko is also a professional tennis player, and her her, her, her situation is not nearly as, as brutal, not nearly as dire as many of her fellow Ukrainians, but it does seem to fit a little bit more, a little bit better at least to me, with how more of us probably feel on a, on a day-to-day basis in this world. Lesia Serenko is a tennis player from Kiev, Ukraine, and she was in the news not for her superb tennis play, which by any kind of relative measure has not been all that superb over the last couple of months, but she was in the news because she was and is effectively homeless. See, Serenko has been on the road since Russia invaded Ukraine, and she hasn't been playing very well, like I said. You can't, you can't find her on the first page of the, of the Women's Tennis Association rankings. In fact, you have to keep scrolling. You know the little next page button? You've got to keep hitting next page, next page, next page, because she's currently ranked, I think, around 130. Now, look, understand, that's still an exceptional tennis player but she's not Ash Barty. In fact, if you do a search for Lessie Serenko, one of the first videos that comes up is her first round match of the Australian Open where she happened to play Ashley Barty, and she lost in straight sets 6061. Now, if you're not familiar with tennis, that's, that's fairly similar to losing like 12-1 in a baseball game or 35-3 in a football game. Right? That was in January, and it's continued to be rough since then for her. She failed to make the qualifying, uh, make it through the qualifying round the tournament in California. She went to Miami. She lost in Miami. She went to Spain, uh, where she lost again in the first round. Now, apparently, after Spain, there's a short break in the, the WTA schedule until next month. Now, typically, that's a good thing, particularly if you've been playing poorly. Chance to return home especially when you haven't been doing all that well. You go home, you get some rest, you reset. Except, of course, when you're Leslie Serenko and you have no home to return to. Now, why do I go through all that? Because I think that actually paints, at least it did for me, a pretty good picture of a functional definition of what hopelessness can feel like. What it feels like to have a lack of hope. Because, and here's, a, here's kind of a working definition that I get from Leslie Serenko's experience, right? It's that feeling of despair when you keep losing, wonder if you'll ever win anything, and you have no home to return to or which you can go where you can rest, right? Hopelessness is that feeling of despair when you keep losing, wonder if you'll ever win anything, and you have no home to return to where you can rest. Now, Peter is writing to people who are like that, people who are in need of hope, which makes it a letter addressed to all of us. And it makes it the perfect letter for us to look at this Sunday and next because because that's what we all need. Whether you're Leslie Serenko or, in all honesty, even if you're Ash Barty. It's what the people of Jerusalem were looking for when Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem on that Sunday that we call Palm Sunday. It's what you're looking for as you process the events in your own life, as you watch the world unfold around us. We need the living hope that Peter talks about here in this letter. So let's do this with what we just read. Four quick points that I think are worth noting as it relates to this topic. The need for hope, the beauty of the promise, the use of suffering, and the down payment of joy. 
Now, the need for hope is first. I don't really probably need to make much more of a case for this. I've already started doing that. But I do want to make sure that we all understand that we're talking about the same thing when we use that word hope. Because if we're after the living hope that Peter talks about here, you need to make sure that you're actually getting and talking about the real thing. Because often we use the term hope, and what, we're re- what we really mean is wish. Right? We say, I, I, I hope to go on vacation next year, or I hope to win the award, or I hope to finish my homework before tomorrow. Right? But when we say that, what we really are saying is that these are our wishes, these are our desires, these are what we want to happen. It may not, but I desire it to. I hope it does. We use the word that way. And this is actually very important, because if we stake our ultimate contentment, our ultimate peace on something that is just at the end of the day a desire or a wish, something that isn't certain, then we've set ourselves up for despair when that thing doesn't happen, when it doesn't occur. And it's actually a very serious thing. Uh, James Stockdale went on to become a U.S. Navy vice admiral, but before that he was a he was Captain Stockdale, who was commanding a fighter wing, a carrier group fighter wing in Vietnam, and in 1965 was shot down over enemy territory, where he spent seven years as a prisoner of war, four of which in solitary confinement. And as the senior officer in the prison camp, he was single, singled out for the harshest of treatment, but he also was responsible for all of the men who were there of lower rank. And he saw and he witnessed what it took to be able to survive in a situation as horrific as that. And he was asked in an interview uh, a number of years before he died, he said, who didn't make it out? Who was it that didn't make it? And Stockdale said, that's easy. It was the optimists. The optimists were the ones that didn't make it out. Now, that's, which is confusing, right? Because you kind of think, well, wait a minute. The optimists, we normally associate optimism with survival, have an optimistic outlook. But listen to what Stockdale meant by this. This is what he said. He said, yes, the optimists. They were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas. And Christmas came and and Christmas would go. And then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter. And Easter would come and Easter would go. And they said, well, we're going to be out by Thanksgiving. I'm going to be optimistic. We're going to be out by Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving would come and Thanksgiving would go. And then they'd be back to Christmas again. And they'd lose the will, the will to live, because everything, everything that they were placing their optimism in were things that were not certain, the things that did not occur. Now, is it still confusing? Think about it. We're, wouldn't, wouldn't looking forward to something help? Well, yeah, but not if that something is just a wish. Not if it's something that you just wanted to happen but had no guarantee that it actually was going to happen. And, and by just picking arbitrary wishes as the basis of your hope, wishes that have no basis in, in reality, the prisoners actually deepened their despair and hastened their death. It's the very same thing if you, if you look at the writings of Viktor Frankl in the, the Holocaust and the, the, the concentration camps of Nazi Germany. It's the exact same thing that he described. It's exactly what happened, which is why we need something more. Did you see the quote on the front of the, the bulletin? If you've been coming to Sunday school, you've been getting a lot of R.C. Sproul recently. Here's another Sproul quote. Hope is not simply a wish. Rather, it is that which latches on to the certainty of the promises of the future that God has made. And that's where we get to point number two, the beauty of the promise. And the only thing I'd add to Sproul's comment, it's always dangerous to try, I'd, I'd say it differently, Dr. Sproul, right? But the only thing I'd add to to Sproul's comment, is that it's hope that not only latches onto God's promises about the future, 
but it's also based on God's keeping of certain promises already in the past. And to see that, we need to get, get into a little bit of the grammar here of verses 3, 4, and 5, all right? So if you got your Bibles open, look at verses 3, 4, and 5. Peter starts with a blessing at the beginning of verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, continuing in verse 3, according to his great mercy. Okay, whose great mercy? Oh, the mercy of God, specifically God the Father he's talking about here. According to, according to the great mercy of God the Father, he, that is the Father, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's God the Son. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, I said we want to look at the grammar a little bit here. If we want to see the beauty of the promise that can be the basis of our hope, because it's a long sentence. And the first question that the commentators sometimes debate is the phrase, through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, that's pretty important. We're talking about Easter this week, right? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And the, and the discussion is, is, is that describing how we're born again? That's option number one, born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Or is it describing the source of our living hope? Our living hope comes, through, comes to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, some would argue grammatically that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is how God the Father has caused us to be born again, which effectively, if you kind of rearrange the clauses, would shift the sentence to read, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to a living hope, okay? Now, others would, others would argue grammatically, more in line with the way the translation that we read sort of orders the clauses, that the resurrection is what we look for as the source of our hope. In other words, where is our hope found? Our hope is found, answer, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, you might ask, does it really matter? And I want to answer that in this particular case with yes and no. Yes, because asking these questions always matters because we want to find out what, we, what the Bible actually says, because we believe, as Jesus taught, that every, every last letter, every last stroke of the pen is there for a reason. And so we care about the study of the original languages and what the text says. And I'm thankful for those who devote their, 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 their lives and their vocations to the study of things like Greek grammar, because the, what the original text says always matters. But in this case, wherever you might fall on the, the debate of the grammatical construction of the sentence, both possibilities are actually very theologically true. The resurrection of Jesus is the archetype, it is the foundational example of rebirth. Remember how Paul talks about spiritual rebirth in the book of Ephesians? We were dead in our sins, but made alive in Christ. That's what Paul says, right? So does the, so does the resurrection matter for understanding how we're spiritually reborn? How are we born again? You bet, because it proves the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it does, it does enable us to be born again. It proves that Jesus can take that which is dead and make it alive again. Now, on the other hand, the historical resurrection of Jesus is the foundation for that living hope. It is how our living hope comes to us. His resurrection is the pledge that we will rise again as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says that if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, our faith is futile. We don't have an eternal hope. He calls, it, he calls it what we have is we have a hope in this life only. 
If Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then we have essentially a wish. We have a hope for this life only. It's not real hope. But he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're, only, we're, we're of most people to be pitied, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, you see, Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits. In other words, it is the source of our living hope, and it is the archetypal down payment for our resurrection. So in a very real sense, it is these grammatical constructions, both of them. Our living hope comes to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is the means by which we are resurrected, and it is the source of it. Now, this connects our future confidence with the truth of the past, and we'll sing about it. We'll sing about it next week. We, we will rise because Jesus has risen, right? Soar we now where Christ has led, following our exalted Him. Made like Him, like Him we rise. Ours, the cross, the grave, the skies. Ours is what Jesus experienced, right? We die and rise again in Him, and that's the beauty the absolute beauty of the promise that is made to us. And Peter goes on in verses 4 and 5 to further describe that living hope. He uses two other phrases to sort of emphasize what living hope means. He calls it an inheritance in verse 4, and he refers to it as a salvation in verse 5. Now, this idea of inheritance, to an ancient Israelite in the days before Jesus, the idea of, a, of an inheritance would have been inseparably connected, very closely tied to the physical land of Israel that God had given to His people. It was their inheritance. But that had always been this physical inheritance of a promised land for God's people. It had always been a sign that would point to something greater, something bigger, an eternal provision by God for His people. And that's what Peter has in view here, an eternal inheritance that is eternal, right? It's, 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 it's a prosperity that will last forever. It's imperishable. It's unfading. It's never going to pass its expiration date. It's undefiled. It's perfect. It's without defect in any way. This is what is ours as an inheritance because of what Jesus has done. And that hope and inheritance is further described, verse 6, as a salvation, as a, as a rescue, now, the salvation is referred to here as something in the future, something to be revealed, but that doesn't make it a wish that may or may not come true. It will happen. It is a guaranteed thing because of God's protective power to sustain the hope and the faith of those who are in the church that Peter's writing to. Now, we have to, though, keep reading to deal with verses 6 and 7 and the issue of suffering, because this all is all of ours, this hope, this living hope, Right? This, this eternal salvation, this glorious inheritance, that is ours, but we have to deal with the obvious continued presence of suffering. And Peter acknowledges it in verse 6 when he says that the Christians to whom he's writing have been grieved by various trials. Right? They understood suffering as a reality, but they understood it as a reality that can be endured, that can be suffered through, by remembering the future promise of a living hope, eternal inheritance, and blessed salvation that comes through the resurrection of Jesus. But isn't this interesting? Peter also seems to understand this suffering not just as something that is endured, but something that is a means to something. In other words, there is a use of the suffering, right? Point number three, there is a use of the suffering. In other words, the, the suffering is an ac accomplishes something else. Now, let's be clear. Suffering is bad. Don't misunderstand me. It results from a sinful, broken world, and that ultimately makes it our responsibility for messing up the world in the first place. But suffering, 
in the hands of a sovereign God of great mercy is also something that is useful, something that can be used and redeemed, something that God can use to strengthen us even further. And the use here that Peter says is the testing of the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. Now, gold is pretty durable in fire, which is why you can purify it by by, by refining it in, in, in fire because you burn away the impurities and the gold is, is pretty durable. But eventually, eventually you turn the heat up enough, even gold's going to perish in the fire. That's what he says. That's what will happen even to gold. Now, the contrast that he's making, because it's, it's, actually, it's actually kind of a contrast. I mean, there's a similarity, right? God uses suffering to sort of test us and purify us like he purifies the gold from the impurities, but there's actually a contrast because he says, unlike gold, which ultimately, if the temperature gets heated high enough, is going to perish even in the fire, unlike that, that's not going to happen to you. Right? That's not going to happen for your faith if your faith is not a wish but a living hope because your living hope is an inheritance that, what does it say, verse 4? An inheritance that is imperishable. Imperishable. And there's something in the process of and in the experience of suffering that can actually increase your confidence and your hope. But we do need to clarify that a little bit and understand that that, 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 that that increase of confidence, that strengthening that comes through our suffering, that it only comes, well, it only comes in a cer- if we understand it in a certain way. H- have you ever heard the phrase, um, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger? You ever heard that phrase? right? Well, that's never, I don't know, that's never sat really well with me. It's never really been that comforting to me. I don't know if it's comforting to you. Whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I think the reason why it's never been particularly comforting to me is that with, with the worst kind of suffering, as you're experiencing it, how do you know that it's not going to kill you, Right? I mean, how do you know? You're in the middle of suffering. I mean, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But as you're suffering, like, how do you know if this isn't it? That this suffering is going to kill you. I mean, I get, you wait till it's over, right? Are you dead? I'm not dead. Okay, I guess I'll be stronger, right? But until then, we're just, I, we just, I guess we just left to wait it out, right? See what happens, right? Experience the suffering and say, well, we'll see. We'll see where this goes. It might kill me, right? But if it doesn't kill me, it'll make me stronger, Right? And then if it doesn't kill kill you, you look back and you say, well, it didn't kill me. I guess I'll be stronger. That's good at least. Well, is that the best we can do? No, the only way that statement can really be comforting is if the uncertainty can be removed. In other words, the only way that you can actually be comforted that God will use your suffering to strengthen your faith is if you knew, and if you knew without a doubt that eternally speaking, your suffering can't kill you. It can't. And that's where we get back to the last week of Jesus' life and what lay ahead of Jesus when he entered into Jerusalem on on Palm Sunday because there is a profound connection between the suffering of Jesus and our suffering. You see in verse 6 where Peter says that, that you are able to rejoice even though you have been grieved by various trials. You see that word grieved? It's a form of the Greek, um, the Greek verb lupeo, and it means, just how it's translated, it means to be, to be grieved, to be troubled, to, to suffer. 
But what some of the commentators point out is that that's the same word that Jesus, is, Jesus uses to describe how He's feeling in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Back to Holy Week, right? If you're tracking Holy Week, that Garden of Gethsemane incident where Jesus is praying, that would be Thursday night after the Last Supper with His disciples right before His arrest. And He goes with His disciples, minus Judas. He goes to this place called Gethsemane, and He says, my soul is very sorrowful even unto death, right? You see it in Matthew 26, 38, if you want to find the verse, right? Very sorrowful. It's the, the, the root is the same Greek word, right? Perilupos, lupeo, right? Peri is just a prefix that means all around, right? He's grieved all around, right? Deeply grieved. How deeply? Unto death, he says. That's what Jesus said. Now, we can't be sure that Peter is trying to make the exact connection between the two, but we do know that Peter understands our suffering to be connected with Jesus, whether he intends it by using the same verb or not. Peter, by the way, was one of, the, was one of only three people who were present when Jesus would have made that statement in the Garden of Gethsemane, along with James and John. But one way or another, it points us to the truth that Jesus' suffering is what allows us to remain joyous and hopeful in the midst of ours. Because what was Jesus preparing to do in the Garden of Gethsemane? He said he was grieved unto death, but why was he grieved to the point of death? Because he was actually going to his death. He was just hours away from his death, from a suffering that is far beyond our ability to comprehend. But it was a suffering that was useful. It was productive. It was a suffering and a death that paid a penalty and satisfied a debt that we could never pay. And do we know that penalty, that payment was accepted, right? I bought something the other day online. They sent me a receipt. How do I know the payment has been accepted? They send you a receipt. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is our living hope because it is the receipt that our negative balance has been wiped out and paid. And it also tells us that whatever we suffer, whatever we suffer in the end will not kill us. And so what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. And our suffering cannot kill us because, ultimate, because the ultimate suffering did not kill us. Jesus, because Jesus rose and made like Him, like Him we rise. That's point three, the use of suffering. Now, very quickly, we don't just, we don't just wait for this joy someday, right? This, this, this hope isn't just all about the future. The hope can be ours now, right? We have a down payment of joy, if you will, that will last until someday when our hope is fully realized, right? That's what Peter's talking about at the end of verse 7 and into verses 8 and 9, right? Though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, right? See, the joy is not, it's not just reserved for the future. It's experienced now, and the goal, the outcome of our faith is the ultimate salvation of our souls, meaning the entirety of who we are, right? That is the goal. Now, this is the message for us as we enter into Holy Week. Yes, suffering awaits Jesus, but there is a purpose to it, and its purpose is the greater mission of God to save a people for Himself, a salvation that becomes our ultimate end and our ultimate goal, to save a people, and that's us, a precious people, a precious people more precious to Him than gold. Do you think of yourself that way? How you think of yourself in the eyes of God, how you think of how you're viewed by Him will make all the difference about whether you're able to experience the living hope in this life in any kind of real way that will give you peace. 
the, the women tennis pros that I was talking about a few minutes ago, they're high profile. They're, they're more of dramatic examples of what all of us face, but they're helpful examples. Lesia Serenko, I tried to find out what happened to her since last week when she said she didn't have a place to go. I couldn't find anything. I don't know. Even Ashley Barty, though, for all of her millions, for all of her tournament victories, the reason why she's leaving the sport at, at the age of 25 is that even though she's the best in the world, she admits that she struggles deeply in her life, depression and, and homesickness. She says, I'm absolutely spent. I've got nothing more to give, right? Which is kind of, if you think about it, hopelessness in both directions, isn't it? Whether you're at one extreme and struggling with measuring up, Leslie Serenko, I'm losing, I'm losing, will I ever win, <laughs> and I've got no place to go? Or you're at the other extreme, Ash Barty, I've got it all. I've achieved it all. I'm at the absolute top, and it doesn't seem to be enough. Either way, there's a big, gigantic hole in your heart, a need for a feeling of safety and wholeness and eternal hope. I'll leave you with this, with another reminder of, of how we can have this, how we can see this right from this, this text. You see at the end of verse 7 that Peter says that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want you to brush over that too quickly. The pr praise, it's going to result in, your, in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When you see a phrase like praise and glory and honor, right, who, who are we, all the, all the good Christians, good well-taught Christians, who are we conditioned to think that a phrase like that is referring to? Right, to God. And for good reason, because, because God is worthy of all praise and all glory and all honor. But do you know that all the commentators I read and heard this week, including one who said he consulted a lot more commentaries than I had even looked at, they all said that the recipient of this praise and honor and glory is at least in part, some would say primarily, the Christian whose faith is being tested. Now, how can that be? Is Peter denying the teaching that God is worthy of praise and glory and honor? No, of course he's not. But go back Go back again to Holy Week. Go back to what Jesus experienced that last week of his life. In John chapter 17, we're once again on Holy Thursday. Jesus is praying what's commonly called his high priestly prayer because he's acting like a priest. He's interceding for his followers. And he prays to the Father. He says, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Okay, fair enough. There you go. Jesus gets the glory. He deserves it. He's God. All glory, all praise, all honor to him, right? Yes, but then just a little bit later, in the prayer, he says, the glory that you, he's talking to the Father, at the glory that you have given me, I have given them that they may be one even as we are one. Right? He says he wants the world to see how the Father has loved them even as the Father has loved him. Do you know what that means? It means that in Christ, in Christ, you are as loved by the Father as Jesus is. It means that you're not just guaranteed salvation, you're guaranteed glorification. It doesn't mean that you deserve it, right? You don't deserve it. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that, that you get what you deserve. It means that you get it, though, which is the definition of grace. And that's why Peter in 1 Peter 5 can call himself a partaker of glory. Not because he's trying to steal it from God, but he recognizes that in Christ, this is exactly how God views him. Does it still seem backwards? 
that we get glory. We're not worthy of glory. We don't deserve the honor like Jesus deserves the honor. And in a sense, it is all backwards, but that is the gospel. On Palm Sunday, Jesus was recognized as a king. The crowd shouted Hosanna as he entered into Jerusalem. They waved palm branches at him. They honored him, but it didn't last. And the crowds were, the crowds were soon condemning him. They were cursing him. They were, they, they, they were cursing the one who deserved all honor and glory. And he was soon, very soon, on the short end of, of a grand injustice experiencing the dishonor. But if you've heard what we've been saying then that act of him assuming the dishonor of the cross, a dishonor that he never deserved, is how we get the glory and the honor that we never did deserve. That's the gospel in the celebration of Holy Week. And as counterintuitive as that seems, that God gives you honor and glory even though you don't deserve it, as counterintuitive as that may seem, then you will never really be able to glorify God until you stop trying to prove that you're somehow worthy of earning His favor, that you earn it, that you can, that you can get the glory by working for it. You'll never really be able to, to give Him glory until you rest in the fact that He has given it to you, that you possess it because of who you are in Christ, a position of honor by sheer grace only and because of what Jesus has done. When you do that, though, when you stop trying to prove yourself, you'll finally be free. You'll finally have a confident, living hope that can never be taken away because you don't need to prove, you don't need to prove your worth with more wins than losses. You don't need to prove your worth by being on the first page before you click of the rankings. You don't need to perform for the watching world in order to feel accepted and valuable. And you don't even need to have an earthly home here at this time and in this age to know with absolute confidence that you have an eternal home where you will be eternally welcomed and where you can fully and finally rest. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this living hope that comes to us through the work of Jesus Christ, His death, His resurrection on our behalf. Lord, allow that hope to strengthen us so that we might be able to live with confidence that we might be able to point others to the grace that is found only in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.